For those of you remaining in the auditorium and watching online, please take your Bibles once again and head over to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 11, and the last four verses of the chapter, Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. We now come to a sort of midway point, a, a tipping point in this letter. Paul, as is his custom, has spent the first part of this letter, this correspondence with the Christians in Rome, zeroing in on the theology, the realities that he wants to express to them, the truths of the gospel and of God that he wants them to grab hold of. Theology and truth are always practical, uh, but we find then starting in chapter 12, sort of the practical outworkings of that theology. So based on what Paul has said to them in the first 11 chapters, not that the letter would have been divided into chapters as originally written, but what he said to them in the first part then, how does that work itself out? What does that look like then in everyday life? And we're going to start that, Lord willing, next Sunday. But as he comes to the end of describing and reiterating and um, uh, just sort of reminding the Christians in Rome of these truths, it's almost as if he just can't help himself and he bursts out in praise. And Paul does this in other letters that he writes. And so this doxology is here for us. Based on what he has said up to this point, he just, it's almost as if he puts his pen down and he stands in awe and wonder at what he has just written. He's the one writing this. He's the one that's been impacted by this. And yet, sometimes we can get so close to something that we miss it, and Paul doesn't want to do that, and so he sort of steps back from it. And when he realizes almost again what he has written and and the sum of these truths that he has expounded, he just bursts forth in praise and and essentially writes another hymn. It's based on Scripture, uh, and certainly is Scripture, but it it's something of Paul's own writing. He just he can't he can't contain it almost. So follow along if you would, as we read these four verses. I'll read them to you in your hearing this morning. Romans chapter eleven, verses thirty-three through thirty-six. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments! And how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I think in our culture, we have lost to a significant degree the ability to be in awe. We've lost a healthy sense of wonder in our culture. I think there's many reasons for that. I think one of the reasons is not that long ago, if you didn't know something, you had to go research it. Now you reach into your pocket and ask Siri or Google. And so the easy access to information, regardless of whether it's true or complete, (laughs) 
has caused us to believe that there's no question that we can't find an answer to. I think that's part of it. There's a loss of mystery when we believe that we have discovered everything and the answer to it all. Another thing is that very thing in our pocket that we oftentimes have our head buried in that and are not actually looking around, like up at the night sky and at the beautiful sunset, like last evening's sunset. So we've lost a sense of wonder, and it is that sense of wonder that Paul wants to reinstate in us this morning. That's the title of the sermon, this idea of wonder. Specifically, Paul wants us to wonder at God, and specifically, God's wisdom and foreknowledge, God's plan for all things. It, is, it ought to be awe-inducing that God has a plan, a foreordained order for all things, is bringing all things to that end, and is doing it in a way that is so infinitely wise and amazingly rich in mercy and grace. There are still opportunities for wonder. I certainly have wondered at natural things. The power of the ocean has always, for me, brought wonder and awe. Whether standing on the shore and seeing the ocean, the waves crashing in the, in the midst of a storm, or actually being on it. I do remember one of the worst storms that I was on the ocean for, in the Bay of Fundy on the ferry between Digby and St. John, New Brunswick. And I think there were times that there was questions of whether we would make the opposite shore. There's an awe in the raw power of the ocean. In the power of thunder and lightning, we had another thunderstorm this week, and you hear that the peals of thunder rolling through, and you see the flashes of lightning. There's a sense of, or, or ought to be, a sense of awe and wonder at the things that God has made and how big He must be if He's the one that called these things into existence. I remember a sense of awe each of the four times that my children were born. This, this mysterious and miraculous reality of new life coming into the world. And I, it was breathtaking. Of course, Mel's breath was also taken away, but that was for different reasons. But it, it's just a, there are things in life, and there ought to be much more of them, that we take a step back and just stand in wonder and awe. And that's what God or Paul wants us to do with God here this morning. And so there are three things, I think, that he outlines that we should wonder at. In the first place, we need to wonder at God's plan. He has outlined it in the first 11 chapters of his letter. He's, re, he's called to our memory, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the nation of Israel, the Gentiles, and all of these things. And when you look at the broad scope of human history, we ought to take a step back. I love history. I've always loved history. I still love history. If I can get a history book, I want to read it. It, it just amazes me. You can see the providence and the sovereignty of God in human history. And Paul has just got done re reviewing for us this reality as it relates to the Jews and to the Gentiles. He's shown that God was blessing the Jews, but also, try, also then blessing the Gentiles because he was blessing the Jews. And then when the Jews rejected him, as they repeatedly did, he brought judgment on them, 
But that was to bless the Gentiles. But in blessing the Gentiles, he's also trying to bless the Jews because of the jealousy the Jews will have that the Gentiles are receiving the blessing that they think they should receive. And when you start getting into complexities, your mind is just blown. How can God do this? And this is what, God, what Paul is telling us. Is he, he writes these things and just takes a step back and says, this is amazing. That God had us all planned out from before time. Before he spoke anything to existence, all of this was a part of his plan. It's all moving the way that God preordained and foreordained that it would go. Notice then three things as we kind of tease this out. God's wisdom and foreknowledge are breathtaking. Oh, the depth, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How deep is the realization that God is omniscient and all-wise? recounting, as Paul has for us, a a history of redemption, a history of God's mercy and grace. How, How profoundly deep is that? That the nation of Israel repeatedly rejected God. The Gentiles repeatedly rejected God. And yet God's mercy and grace are all the time evident. The remnant of God, whether that's eight people on the ark, whether that's 7,000 people during the time of Elijah, whether that's four friends in captivity in Babylon, whatever that is, that God always has a remnant. God is always at work. And there is no such thing as insurmountable human sin. It doesn't exist. Because God's grace is always greater than sin. Light is always more powerful than darkness. Love is always more powerful than hate. God's grace is always more powerful than sin. There is a a profound depth there to recounting these things. And Paul does not want to just rush to the application. He wants us to sit and marinate a little bit in this. I I would encourage you even later on this afternoon, to just sit and think and remember God's working in your life. All of us can remember where we would be and where we were apart from Jesus Christ, the righteous. When was the last time you were grateful, profoundly grateful for God's mercy and grace in your life? When is the last time that we sat and we just poured out praise to God and thanksgiving for saving our eternal souls? It's deep. That God in his wisdom and in his knowledge chose us. And in the right way, at the right time, he brought us to faith in him. Remember when you knew who you really were and who, you, and who God really was. Remember that time or that period of time? What changed? It didn't, you didn't get smarter. You didn't get better looking. You didn't have more money in the bank. What changed is that God opened your eyes. He opened your heart and mind to see you in the depth of your depravity and to see him in the radiance of his glory. Remember that and thank him. Paul takes a step back. He almost lays the pen down and says, 
God's mercy and his grace, his wisdom and knowledge, how deep that is. Notice in the second place, his wisdom and foreknowledge are rich in mercy and grace. If we took God's raw omniscience, omnipresence, and omnipotence without his mercy and grace, that would be breathtaking and awe-inspiring. It would also be terrifying. They say that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And how can a single being have all the power in the universe and use that in any way that is positive and beneficial? And yet, what does Paul say? Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How rich is God's grace and mercy? How amazing is his grace? I would have given up on the nation of Israel long before Moses did. Definitely long before God did. He still hasn't. I would have given up on me a long time ago. How can you be in Egypt and see the plagues that God brings upon the Egyptians? systematically picking off one by one their deities that are useless. Note the plagues and note the gods of Egypt. They line up. Everything that the Egyptians trusted in, everyone the Egyptians trusted in, God showed them that they were worthless, useless. They were no gods, only he was God. How do you stand there and watch that? How do you stand at the Red Sea and have that feeling of abject hopelessness be replaced by the euphoria of escape when God opens up the Red Sea and you walk across it and then you get five steps into the wilderness, there's no drinking water, you're like, God, what can he do? Like, (laughs) but that's us, isn't it? Every single day. You complained yesterday. You probably complained this morning already. Israel was was said to be in the Old Testament a stubborn and stiff-necked people. God did not, has not abandoned them. And he does not and will not abandon us. How amazing is, is his grace and mercy. And even in the midst of showing mercy and grace time after time to his people, the Jews, he also shows it to the Gentiles. Read the book of Jonah as one example. How amazing is God's grace and mercy. And and Paul has taken a a significant amount of ink to explain that and to reinvestigate that. And he stops and he just says, how merciful and gracious is our God. God's plan then in the third place is incomprehensibly and unforeseeably beautiful. How unsearchable are his judgments. There is no one that has the knowledge that God has. He has all knowledge. He is omniscient. God's understanding and God's ways are incomprehensible to us. They cannot be figured out. As John Piper says, because God is infinite, he's never boring. There's more to discover. God loves throwing us curveballs, not because he is malicious, but because he delights to bring us to the place where he is all we have to remind us that he is all we need. How can you figure God out? If you get God figured out, guess what? That makes you God. Can't figure God out. 
Google does not have all of the answers as it relates to God and his ways and his thoughts. Neither does Siri or anything else. His, his ways, his, his, his knowledge, his plan is, is un, it's incomprehensible. It's, it's unsearchable. There's no way that we can figure out what God is thinking, or what, he, what he's doing. And how untraceable is what intractable means, and, or sorry, inscrutable. Untraceable, unforeseeable. When we think God's got this plan and this is where God is going, we think we got God figured out and where he's going next. We don't. I, I still am reminded of the sermon by Ligon Duncan from 1 Kings chapter 19. Elijah believes that he knows what God is up to. God's going to bring revival to Israel. He's already brought a mini revival in Israel. 450 prophets of Baal have been slaughtered. And now we are going to move ahead with revival in Israel. They're going to cast away Baal and Asherah. Jezebel and Ahab are gone and we're going to get back on the right track. And what happens? Not that. Elijah believed that he knew God's plan. The last time we see Elijah in the Old Testament, he has a successor, Elisha. When Elijah dies, Jezebel's still on the throne. And yet, as Lig pointed out, where's the next time we see Elijah in Holy Scripture? Standing next to Moses and Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. What happened to Elijah's mind when he entered glory and saw that it was not just God's plan to, to have a revival in Israel at a specific point in time with a specific people of God, but that God's plan was to call to himself people from every tribe, kindred, tongue, and nation, right? The, 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 the explosive reality of God's plan. Elijah got a little peace and God says, I got so much more. His ways are unforeseeable. Praise be to God. How beautiful is this? So wonder at God's plan in verse 33. Notice in the second place, wonder at God's person, verses 34 and 35. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Isaiah 40. God's thoughts are unknowable by us. It is impossible for the finite to fully understand the infinite. There are times and seasons and situations and circumstances in our life that do not seem to make any sense and seem at the time to contradict the goodness and the grace and mercy of God. We can't figure it out. And it's at those times that the trust in God needs to increase, not decrease. Because we need to trust that God does have it figured out. He does have a plan. And because of who God is, everything that happens in our life has meaning and purpose and significance. How could you stand at the foot of the cross and believe that there was anything positive that could come out of that? How could you stand there and see the one who walked on water and brought sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf and all he ever did was speak truth in love to people? How could you see that one hanging on the cross, dying the most horrific death you could possibly imagine from which we get the word excruciating? How could you look at that and say, God's doing something here? And yet you take a step back and on Sunday morning, those years ago, Jesus Christ comes out of the grave. Oh, our God is up to something always for his glory and our good, every single moment of the day. And we can trust that. We don't understand it, but we have a relationship with the one who does. We know him and we are known by him. Who has known the mind of the Lord? No one. 
That is not a negative thing. That is an incredibly beautifully positive thing. Whether they were stuck in a hospital bed or whether everything is going the way that we want it to. God is doing what brings him the most glory and us the most good every step of the way. Number two, God's wisdom never requires outside advice. Job 41, who has been his counselor? Slightly tongue-in-cheek, the Almighty asked Job, Job, where were you when I called forth all things into being? You know, Job, this creation that I made, called all this stuff into existence from nothing, it's okay. But man, if you had been there, man, we really could have done something. I could have used some advice. I could have used some help. What does Job say at the end of that book? I lay my hands on my mouth. Job had a lot to say until he met God. And then after God revealed him just a glimpse of who he was to Job, Job says, I better shut up. I thought I knew you, he says, but now I have seen you with my eyes. I have nothing more to say. Who gives God advice? I do. A lot. So do you. Right? We come to God in prayer, oftentimes advising God how things ought to go. <laughs> really? Now, calling God to act according to his promises is completely legitimate. But telling God how he ought to do things in our lives or the lives of anyone else is a little bit foolish, isn't it? Who advises the omniscient one? Who gives counsel to the one who called all things into existence from nothing? God then, in the third place, is indebted to no one. Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? God owes no one anything. It is, in fact, the exact opposite. We owe God everything. At the point of our salvation, at the time of our salvation, did we sit down with God at a conference room and we're on opposite sides of the conference table and God says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take all of your sins and lay them on my own son, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and he'll pay them in full. And then I will give to you my righteousness, his righteousness, and call you my son. And, and at that moment did we say, God, that sounds great. And here's what I'm going to do for you. What? There, there was, when it comes to God's mercy and grace, there are no negotiations. We bring nothing to the table. What has Paul told us earlier on in the book? Mercy is undeserved and unearned. Otherwise, it's not mercy. And he has said that explicitly in this chapter. And the chapter before, if grace is not grace, if it's not unearned and undeserved, it ceases to be grace. How often do we sit here believing that God got a good deal when he got us? Instead of being eternally grateful that he's shown his grace and mercy on us as undeserving as we are. God is in no one's debt. 
Which leads us to the third thing this morning is a wonder at God's perspective. Wonder at God's perspective. For from Him are all things. God is the source of all things. There is a base theological reality that all of us must understand. There is God and then everything else. God is the holy other one, the uncaused cause, the uncreated creator, the transcendent, majestic God of the universe, and then everything else finds its source in him. There is nothing that can say, I did this on my own. Nothing. As the Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper famously said, there's not a single molecule in the entire universe over which Jesus Christ does not say, that's mine. Everything finds its source in God. God is the sustainer of all things. Through him are all things. Colossians 1, 16 and 17. Christ created all things and by him all things hold together. What an awe-inspiring thought of the riches and the depth of the mercy and the grace of God that Jesus Christ the righteous, writhing in agony on the cross, allowed the hearts of the soldiers, the Jewish leaders, and the crowd therein gathered to continue to beat and their lungs to continue to draw breath. Their life was literally in his hands. Our lives are in his hands. Our days are numbered by him. Everything is sustained by him. And the goal of all things is him, and to him are all things. The end of all of this is him. He is the beginning and the end and the middle. But at the end, there is either a begrudging admittance that he is king of kings and lord of lords, and yet a continued rebellion and thus judgment for eternity, or there is a glad submission to him as king of kings and lord of lords, and a beautiful acceptance and a delight in his sovereignty the end of all things is god that's where it's all headed it looks a little bit these days like it's headed somewhere not him <laughs> god's still on the throne god's still always who he's always been and the end of all things is still him and so god is to receive all the glory to him be glory forever Amen. All glory to God. He alone is to receive all the glory and honor and praise. So where does this leave us this morning, Grace Baptist Church? What do we do with this? For those of us that know him, I'll ask or re-ask the same question from earlier. How grateful are we to him? Do our lives exude praise to him? We thank him for giving us life and then giving us life a second time in Christ. Do we structure our lives around the goal of him? Do we understand and live like this is not the end of all things, but that he is the end of all things? Not so that we have our head in the clouds and we're no, not even connected to reality here. It's not what we're talking about. 
but only a realization of where this is all headed enables us to properly live in the here and now. Only living for the there and then enables us to properly live in the here and now. Are we doing that well by the power of God and by his grace? This is not all there is, but this is moving towards him. Are we living that way? Perhaps you're here this morning or watching online and things are not as you would like them to be. Please know this. The one who is in control of all things has a plan for all things and all things are moving according to his plan. And if you are his, one of his children, there is a reason why this is happening in your life. There is meaning and purpose and significance. None of this is outside of his control. None of this took him by surprise. None of this is just meaningless and without any purpose or significance. Perhaps you are here this morning and you have someone who is heavy on your heart. A child, a grandchild, a family member, a close friend. And they've either never understood the beauty of God or they had access to that knowledge and have since rejected it. Please know this. God is a God who is rich in mercy and grace. I posted a sermon from Alistair Begg a few weeks ago on our Facebook group. He talks about the man on the middle cross said I could come. You have a thief on the cross who just seconds before was mocking Jesus along with his fellow prisoner, fellow convict. And yet something changes. The grace and mercy of God overwhelm him. He's overwhelmed by his own sinfulness and Jesus Christ's glory. And in that moment, in simple repentance and faith, he says to the thief that is two crosses down, we deserve to be up here. He does not. Lord, remember me today. And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Until the moment that a person exits this life and goes into the next, it is never too late because God's grace is always greater than our sin. Have hope. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable, unforeseeable, untraceable are his ways. Rest in him. Trust in him. See what he has done. Marvel at it. And then get prepared to marvel at what he's going to do tomorrow and the day after and all the days of our lives. Let's look to him in prayer this morning. Father, we are so thankful to bow our heads in reverence and respect and awe of you. Father, you are so high above us, and yet you have descended down to us. We are undeserving of your love, and yet we are recipients of it, and I pray this morning grateful for it. Father, there's a lot of things going on in our society right now. There's a lot of things going on in individual lives connected to Grace Baptist and beyond right now. There are seasons, seasons of difficulty, seasons of ease, seasons of rejoicing, and seasons of lament. 
And in and through all of those things, there is one steady constant, and it is you. As Paul has surveyed the landscape of history, he realizes just how magnificent you are and how incomprehensible your ways are. That someone like a Rahab, someone like a Ruth, someone like a David, someone like a Samson would be a recipient of your grace and mercy. Father, if there is hope for them, there's hope for us. And we know if there's hope for us, there's hope for anybody. Thank you that your heart towards us is one of compassion and love, mercy and grace and kindness and gentleness and goodness, truth and love. Father, may we be profoundly grateful this morning and profoundly hopeful because all things under your wise and good care have purpose and meaning and significance. And while we may not understand it, this side of glory, we will one day be in your presence and we will either understand it all or it won't matter. Help us, Father, to trust in you, not just at a moment in time when we prayed a prayer or walked an aisle or signed a card. No, Father, that every single moment of every single day we would trust in you. You are our only hope. I pray that is true for everyone that is listening this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.